Well, we are beginning a new book this morning in our study of the Word of God, and it's found in 3 John. So I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to 3 John. It appears right after 2 John and right before Jude. If you remember before our study on the pre-reformers and the Reformation, we had looked at 2 John. And now we're going to go through 3 John. Uh, It's written by the same author, as the Gospel of John, First and Second John, as well as Revelation. And the man I'm talking about is the Apostle John, who was a disciple as well as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John is committed to two inseparable things that we find in all of his writings, and that is truth and love. And these virtues are found in all of his writings. When he begins verse 1 here in 3 John, he identifies himself the same way he did in 2 John as the elder. That's the Greek word presbyteros, which is a term that identifies two things. Number one is age, but not just age, but church leadership. So as one writer says, it's likely indicates a position of great dignity. And I imagine that it did, the Apostle John being the author of these letters. Uh, The term does convey, as I said, an advanced age, but it also conveys the authority that he had in the churches. Now, he is writing to one particular individual, and that is Gaius, whom he says in verse 1 that he loves in the truth, but he's not the only individual mentioned in this letter. You have Diotrephes mentioned in verses 9 through 11, and you have Demetrius that's mentioned in verse 12. But when you look at this book as compared to the other New Testament letters, we find that this is the shortest of all the books in the New Testament. It only has 219 words in the Greek text. Now, there are some interesting similarities when you compare it to 2 John. Let's see how your memory is of our study of 2 John. You have in both the letters that he identifies himself, as I said earlier, as the elder. And also, the recipients are those who love the truth. You remember that he said that in 2 John, and he's saying it now again. And the recipients are the occasion of great rejoicing. That's because they're walking in the truth. And he receives good reports. And that occurred in both the letters. Both letters also contain a warning. The elder desires to see both of them face to face, and then it ends with a greeting. Very similar, both personal letters. The only other personal letter that we have Uh, that would be similar to these would be Philemon. Now, I know that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus, and those are personal letters, but these are shorter letters, and they're more intimate uh, than those letters. Now, the structure of these two letters is also similar. The brevity of each would have allowed it to fit on a single page of papyrus, which would be the paper that they would have used. You have in 2 John... 
You have the greeting and the salutation that appeared in verses 1 through 3. And here in 3 John, you have the greeting and salutation appearing in verses 1 to 4. In 2 John, verses 4 to 6, you have an exhortation to love. Here in 3 John, the exhortation to love appears in verses 5 to 8. In 2 John, there's a warning concerning false teachers. That's found in verses 7 through 9. But here in 3 John... There is a warning concerning Diotrephes in verses 9 and 10. In 2 John, there is a charge to reject false teachers in verses 10 and 11. And here in 3 John, there is a commendation to receive Demetrius in verses 11 and 12. And of course, both the letters conclude with a greeting. Now I want you to listen to these 15 verses and follow me as I read them. John says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church." Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. As I said, there are three individuals named in this letter. In the first eight verses, you have Gaius in verses 9 through 11, Diotrephes in verse 12, Demetrius. And the letter is written to Gaius about Diotrephes who wanted to be first among them and who does does not accept what we say. But before he addresses the problem with Diotrephes, he commands Gaius, or commends Gaius, for his treatment of his fellow workers for the gospel as well as his service for the church. I want you to notice this commendation. Again, it occurs in verses 1 through 8. And John tells him three things, three things that he commends him for. First, 
He was beloved by John. That's in the first two verses. Notice them again. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Verse 2, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. So you'll notice in verse 1 as well as in verse 2, he's identified by that Greek word agapetos, which is translated beloved. The word itself means to be dearly loved to be cherished. This really gives us insight about how John felt about him. He cherished him. In fact, if you have the NIV, it's translated dear friend. But I think the beloved just really carries more of the intimacy that we find here. This is also the same word that God used about Jesus. Over in Matthew 3.17, he said, And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Same word, agapetos. Paul even uses that word when he speaks of the believers at Rome, and he adds actually a preposition after it. He says in Romans 1.7, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful term to be identified by, to be beloved by God, to be cherished by God. And that's because of the work of Christ on the cross that had brought us into this kind of relationship with Him that prior we never had because we were dead in our trespasses and sins and we were enemies of God according to Romans chapter 5. But we're not any of that now. And again, it's all because of the work of Christ. The word beloved is used in other places. In fact, we find it in Acts 15.25, and it speaks of our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Paul even used it to the Corinthians when he referred to them in 1 Corinthians 4.14 as beloved children. He referred to Tychicus in Ephesians 6.21 as a beloved brother. He referred to Onesimus as our faithful and beloved brother in Colossians 4.9. And he also referred to Epaphras as our beloved fellow bondservant in Colossians 1.7. The term indicates that we are the objects of God's affection. We love him, as 1 John says, because what? He first loved us. We didn't have anything in ourselves that we could love him. But again, it's the work of Christ as well as the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit has been shed abroad in our hearts. He, he has put His love in our heart that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit. Paul uses it again, and he uses it all throughout the New Testament. We even find John using it again here in 3 John, not only in verses 1 and 2, but it appears again in verse 5 and verse 11. Now, it's very important, especially when we get to verse 2, that you understand the common form of writing during that time. And we've looked at this many other times. The common form of writing in that day would be a salutation, which would consist of the writer, the reader, and the greeting. You have the same thing here. We have the name of the author, the writer, which is the elder. We have the reader, which is Gaius. And we have the greeting itself, which is a thanksgiving that he says in verse 3. But before we look even further at that, I want to draw two principles that are found here in these first two verses. 
First of all, Christians love Christians. I mean, you see that right there with John's affection that he shows toward Gaius and referring to him as beloved. And, you know, John makes that point in all of his letters, especially in the epistles. But let me just point it out in the, the epistles themselves. Over in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 10, John says, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So if you love your brother, you're in the light. If you don't, then there's all the reason to stumble, right? This, there's a cause of stumbling. But it goes even deeper. 1 John 3, verses 10 and 11 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. But this is the message which we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So he says here, if you don't love your brother... You're not of God. Because love is what marks you as being a child of God. Again, the love the Spirit of God has given to you, according to Romans 5.5. 5. Over in chapter 3 and verse 14 of 1 John, John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know this? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So not only are you of the devil if you don't love, but... You also abide in death. And this is really the confirmation and the assurance that we have that we belong to him is when we love. Over in verse 16 of 1 John 3, it says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And there is your definition right there, because agape love does exactly that. You lay down your life for other believers. That's really unheard of today because usually the demonstration of how we respond to other people is not a sacrifice. It's usually done in a manner to where we can gain something from this. But you know, agape love in the New Testament is a love that is unconditional. It is a love that is sacrificial. It is a love that gives rather than receives. And a good example of that is even in 1 John three eighteen, where he says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And he has just told them, if you see your brother in need and you shut up your heart of compassion from him, how does the love of God dwell in you? So he puts a question there. And he says, if you don't love, and you don't love to the point of meeting a personal, practical need, then your very love is in question. And that's why he calls in verse 18 to love with word. Or to love not just with word, but with deed and truth. Over in verse 23, we hear these words, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. Verse John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So as you can see, that this is really 
His theme in his letters is to talk about love and truth, and he keeps them together. He doesn't separate them. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And all that is in 1 John. In fact, one more in 1 John, 1 John 5.1, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. This is how we know that we belong to Him. It's the love that we have for one another. And again, that theme is not only in 1 John, but also in 2 John. He says in 2 John 1.1, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. And then down at verse 5, he says, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which you've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And then he carries us over into his third letter. We already heard verse 1, where he talked about loving Gaius in truth. But look down at verse 6. He says, And they have testified to your love before the church. You're speaking of Gaius and the love that he had for the church and the love that he had for Christian strangers, specifically pastors, preachers, traveling itinerant preachers. Because that's really what you're seeing here. Christians loving Christians. We've all, maybe we all have, been in one of those horrible business meetings where we didn't see love expressed and we saw hate being expressed and something that was definitely not characteristic of any New Testament church. In fact, when a church acts like that, it's acting more like Corinth than it is anything because that church was marked and riddled by divisions. But beloved, when we put all that aside and we prefer others before ourselves, that's what it really means to love one another. It means that you humble yourself and you put that person above yourself. You know, in marriage we're told to do that. Ephesians 5.25, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. In Titus 2, uh, wives are to love their husbands and their children. In fact, they're called children lovers and husband lovers, literally in that text. Love is what marks us. In fact, Jesus said uh, to the disciples, This is how all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. But it can't be separated from truth. In the culture in which we live today, there are many churches and pastors trying to adopt uh, other people into the fellowship, bring them into the fellowship, and they're trying to do it in the name of love, but it is absent of truth. And beloved, if you truly love, love rejoices in truth, according to 1 Corinthians 13.4. We can't just... Pour out love on anyone and everyone and everything apart from truth. And how we deal with those situations when a person is in error, whether it's moral error or doctrinal error, is we love them by confronting them in their error, in their sin. That's true love. If I love you, then I'm going to be willing to tell you what you need to hear from the Word of God and not sugar-coated or not be hesitant or 
hold back because I'm worried about your feelings? Yes, I don't want to needlessly offend, but you can't separate it from truth. Truth and love are inseparable. There is a second principle that we can find here. Not only do Christians love Christians, but when you are loved or the object of one's affections, you become the object of their prayers. Look at verse 2. John says to Gaius, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. John cared about his spiritual brother, Gaius. He was concerned for his physical well-being. The word prosper that he uses here, it's a reference to good health or physical well-being. It is not a reference to money. Why in the world would I say that? Well, you have prosperity preachers today that use this as a proof text for their prosperity gospel. In an article entitled, How to Prosper from the Inside Out, Kenneth Copeland asks, How does God's people prosper? The answer, he says, is in 3 John 2. God blesses you materially as your soul prospers on His Word. Copeland asserts that most Christians believe that God will make them prosper as the economy prospers, or even as their employers decide to promote them. He says this is wrong. Instead, as the seeds of prosperity are planted in your mind, in your will, and in your emotions, they eventually produced a great financial harvest. That is bad hermeneutics, I'll just have to say. Well, his wife is no different. Gloria Copeland interprets the verse in the same way. She says, God's plan is for us to grow financially as we grow spiritually. God's plan is for us to grow financially as we grow spiritually. You know, there are many people that were poor in the Bible. (laughs) There are many people poor today, right? She says the reason is God knows it is dangerous to put great wealth into the hands of someone who is too spiritually immature to handle it. And so she too interprets 3 John 2 as a divine promise. She says, God wants us to increase financially at the same rate we increase spiritually. But Paul, not Paul, but John is not saying this. He was simply wishing them well. He's not stating a promise. Again, I remind you, this was an official greeting. He identifies himself in verse 1 and his audience in verse 1. And as he's continuing to talk about his audience, which is Gaius, verses 1 through 8, he's basically just telling him, I pray that you're in good health. I pray you're doing well. You write a letter, you may do the same thing. Hello, so-and-so, I pray you're doing well. It's just a greeting. It's like when we were growing up, you know, we were growing up and we would ask somebody, how are you doing? And we really, it was just a greeting. Now, my neighbor across the street took that question very seriously, and she always told us how she was doing, and we quit asking because I was only like 9 or 10 years old, and I didn't really care. All I cared was about the candy they were selling. Give me my candy and let me go. Let's not get in this long conversation about your ailments. I don't care. Again, why would I? I I was so young. 
somewhere around that age, 9, 10. But again, usually when we use that, it is a greeting. Now, there are other ways to use it to where you really want to know how a person is doing. You may phrase it a little differently. In fact, uh, sometimes we'll even use the head nod. You know, you, I was in the store one day at Home Depot, and this guy come by me in a wheelchair, and I just kind of nodded my head. He took that nod as a stop to talk to me. I wasn't interested in talking. I was in there looking for my thing. You know, here, let me tell you something about me when I go to the store. I know why I'm there. I'm on a mission, okay? I don't care about anything else but finding what I went there for. And if my wife tells me, verbally tells me to pick up something else, I will miss that because it's not on my mission list. You see? Don't I? I do it all the time. Why didn't you get this? Well, it wasn't on the list. And even when she today will tell me, she'll say, on your way home, you need to pick this up. I'll say, text me. So I'll remember it. But I do have three little ones back here that will remind me. But it's not good if we all forget but it's just a greeting when we're asking some of these questions. And it is not a theology to build here to say that God wants you to prosper financially. So the first commendation, he was beloved by God. The second commendation is in verse 3. And that is he was walking in truth. And this still is a part of the greeting. He says, I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. Now, we haven't heard yet what he's doing to walk in truth. What is he doing that he's labeling this, that he's walking in truth? Well, before we get to that, let me just make a couple more statements. It, it, it brings great joy to your heart when you hear Another believer is walking in truth and not walking in error. In fact, you, you love it when you come across another believer and you find a lot of commonality there. And you're not having to deal with some kind of error. And again, this is part of the official greeting. It was customary for the writer to commend his audience. And that's how John's doing it here. This is also how Paul did it in his letters. Let me just give you a couple examples of that. When he wrote to the Romans, he said in Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So his thanksgiving there that he's offering to God on their behalf is because they're spreading the faith. They're not being quiet. They're, they're giving out the gospel. Believe it or not, when he wrote to the Corinthians, you know, the first part of the letter is a commendation, about the first nine verses. And then when you get to verse 10, then he begins to confront the problems, and the first one being division. But listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 1.4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And you know what? You can thank God for something like that in a very troubling church because you know what? They haven't arrived either. They haven't arrived at perfection. Their life does not match their calling like it would be when they go to be with Him. They had a lot of growing to do. 
They came out of paganism and they brought that paganism into the church. They had a lot to work on, just like each of us. I remember after I came to Christ that one of the things the Lord wiped or left there for me to work on was my mouth, my language. Now, I found that very interesting because, you know, I was really into drugs. And he removed it all instantly. But my bad mouth, he didn't. Left that for me to work on by his spirit. And uh, what I did for three months is just memorize scripture. Just memorize scripture. And every time a thought came to my mind that was like that, just don't dwell on that, confess that, move on. And eventually, those bad words stopped coming out of my mouth. But that was a work of the Spirit, of Him doing that just as the other things are a work of the Spirit. But He left for me in my sanctification to do this with His Spirit and not just instantly wipe it out. And I praise God for that. When Paul was writing to the Philippians in Philippians 1.3, he says, Every time I remember you, I thank God for you. When he wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 1.3, he says that he gives thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So as he was thinking about them and he's thankful for them, he's also praying for them. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, he said in 1 Thessalonians 1-2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. So same thing, every time he thought about them, he prayed for them. You know, there's some people in our life, we do the same thing. We think about them, we immediately pray for them. We know a little bit of thing, a few things about them and what they're going through. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, verse 3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Because your faith is greatly enlarged, the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. And here he is thanking God for their growth, their spiritual maturity. When he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.3, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So it seems that his thanksgiving is tied to prayer for them. When he wrote... His letter to Philemon, in verse 4, he says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. So think about John. Look at verse 3. He was filled with joy when brethren came and testified that Gaius was being obedient to God's word. You say, well, what was Gaius doing to be obedient to God's word? And by the way, this is the same joy that he had when he heard about the, the chosen lady's children in Second John that brought about this joy and how that they were walking in truth. He says, actually, in verse 4, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth. And again, when you hear that, that brings joy to you, especially if you're a pastor. But he says here, this divine command, which we all have received... It actually refers to a particular moment in history. R.C. Sproul says that it's the central command given to Christians by Jesus himself in John 13, 34. What does John 13, 34 say? 
says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. The command to love. And as I said earlier, the command of loving and the command of truth are inseparable. They go together. Stephen Smalley says that the thought also harks back directly to 1 John 3, 23, where God's command is designated as twofold, to believe in Jesus and to love one another. Once again, truth, the truth revealed in Jesus, and love, the love which God commands and inspires, belongs together. Both are enjoined upon the faithful believer, and both are to characterize his way of life, and that is true. And the present tense is used in those verbs that you continue to believe and you continue to love. Again, this is what marks your life. So the Father's commandment is the standard of truth, and his standard of truth is to love one another. I have no greater joy than to hear this, that my children are walking in truth. As we begin to unfold this even more, you'll see that because exactly what Gaius was doing was ministering to these itinerant preachers that were traveling from place to place, and he was putting them up, giving them a place to lodge. He was also providing them with food and support, This is what John is referring to when he says that Gaius was walking in truth. He was being hospitable. Hospitality is something that is commanded in Scripture. I know some of us don't feel comfortable having people in our home that we really don't know very well. But it's not saying just anybody. The example that we have here of Gaius are Christian preachers. Not false teachers. Not even unbelievers. He's talking about Christian preachers. Traveling preachers of the word. Not false teachers, but true teachers of the gospel. These are the ones that he was putting up. Kenneth Weiss says, We are to order our behavior, conduct ourselves, dominated by the commandments of God. They are to be the dominating factor in our behavior. In the clause, you shall walk in it. The word it refers to love, not the commandment. We should conduct ourselves in the sphere of love. Divine love produced in the heart by the Holy Spirit is the motivating factor that impels saints to observe the commandments of God. See, John had heard that Gaius had a good reputation among other believers. And again, this brought him great joy. He says, I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. This was a faithful walk by a faithful man. This was a man who loved not just in word, but in deed and in truth. This was a man who loved one another. And all they could say about him was good. 
By the way, in verse 3, when it talks about how the brethren came and testified, that is used also in the present tense to say that they kept saying good things about him. And beloved, if, if something like that is getting around as a testimony, others are hearing this. Just as others would hear if he didn't have a good testimony and he wasn't a good man like Diotrephes, who loved to be first, loved to have the preeminence. But this man, Gaius, this man truly loved, this man truly met the needs of the saints. He was obedient to the Word of God, and not just in word, but in deed. Can people say this about you too? That you're a man or a woman of truth? Proverbs 8, 7 says, For my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. Is that true for you too? Psalm 51, 6, David said as he's confessing his sin, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. Truth, integrity. See, Gaius lived what he preached. He had genuine love for Christian strangers. It's like hearing the admonition in Colossians 2.6, As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And even the psalmist says in Psalm 15, 2, that he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, that's walking in truth. And again, I remind you, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. So Gaius was beloved by John. He was walking in truth. And third, he was faithful to the brethren and strangers. Look at verse 5. John says in verse 5 that he was acting faithful in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. Uh, you could read it back this way, uh, because in the NAS, the word acting and accomplish are translated by the same Greek word, and it could be translated do, so it could read back this way. You do faithful in whatever you do for the brethren, especially when they're strangers. And faithful, that, that translates that Greek word pistis, which could be given to us as reliable or trustworthy. You're reliable and you're trustworthy in everything that you do for the brethren. He wasn't merely doing a kind and generous act, but... He was seeing this as his spiritual service. That hospitality that he was affording the traveling preachers and teachers, this was a definite piece of work for the Lord that he was doing. This was Christian service. Do you look at that the same way when you're reaching out to someone? That this is a service that you're doing for the Lord Jesus Christ? Whether you feed them, whether you help them maybe with a bill or whether you give them a temporary place to stay. See, he was doing what God required. What does God require in hospitality? Well, 
Romans 12.3, we are to contribute to the needs of the saints. Galatians 6.10, we are to do good to those who are of the household of faith. Hebrews 13.2, we're not to neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Job 31.32, where Job opened up his doors to the traveler, he says the alien has not lodged outside. Each time you do this, you are ministering for Jesus, but you're also ministering to Jesus. Did you understand that? Matthew 25, 35, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. See, he was continually engaged in caring for the needs of the saints by ministering the word to them in a very practical way. And this caused other believers to testify of this love. They were bearing witness. They were giving testimony to his love before the church. And so John tells them in verse 6, You'll do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. These were faithful men who were carrying the word of God and Gaius was ministering to them. Send them in a manner worthy of God. They accepted nothing from the Gentiles. They went out for the sake of the name. We ought to support such men. And when we support them, we become fellow workers with the truth. You know, I was thinking about that last one. Fellow workers with the truth. You know, when you support the ministries here and support parachurch ministries, you are a fellow worker with the truth. And there are a number of certainly worthy parachurch ministries to support, but I believe that the support first and foremost should come to the local church. And then above that, support for local ministries. So, loving Christian preachers by providing for their needs, by providing food and lodging, is walking in the truth. Hospitality is what God commands. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. I believe that's a direct reference to Genesis 18, where the three men came and spoke to Abraham the text tells us one of them was an appearance of God, which would be a theophany or appearance of Christ, a Christophany. The other two were angels, according to Genesis 19, when they were sent to Sodom to destroy it. And what did Abraham do? Abraham met their need. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Do this from your heart. Leviticus 19.33 says, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You know, when you trace in the Old Testament, what were some of the things that they would do when they were hospitable? Uh, for example, it could be a greeting. 
by bowing down or by giving a kiss. Genesis 18.2, when the, the men came to Abraham, it says that he bowed down to them. In Genesis 19.1, when the two angels came to Sodom, they came in the evening and they were going to sleep in the open square, but Lot didn't want them to do that because of the wickedness of the city. So he brought them into his house. Another way hospitality was shown was a welcome to guests to come in their home, to feed them, to take care of them. In Genesis 24-31, you have Laban who is speaking to the servant of Abraham. If you remember, Abraham's servant was charged with finding a wife for his son Isaac. And when he went here and was there gathering water, he was praying. And he was praying for that woman who would come and gather the water and also water his camels. And there she was, and I could see him standing there with his mouth open as his prayer is being answered right before his eyes when she offers to water the camels. You know how much water a camel drinks? This went on for a while. But Laban said to him, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside since I prepared the house and a place for the camels? So he prepared for his needs. When Abraham was ministering to the three men that came to him, he said, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. See, that was the kind of hospitality that they were showing. Even in a very interesting way, Sisera, who was the commander of Jabin's army in Judges 4, was invited by a woman to come into his house her name was Jael. And she told him, Turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent. And she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. And she opened up a bottle of milk and gave him, him a drink. And then she covered him. And the bottle of milk, because he was so tired, would cause him to fall fast asleep. That was the enemy of the Lord. And God rescued Israel through this woman. You know what she did? She drove a tent peg through his temple while he was asleep. But aside from that, she was very hospitable. <laughs> Many of us don't agree with how Lot responded by offering his two daughters to all those, to that mob that was outside his door. But that was how you treated strangers that came to your house. You provided security for them. Again, I, I don't agree with what he did, but he did it. When you study the Mosaic Law, you find there... There's significant guidance in the treatment of neighbors and strangers. They were commanded to treat foreigners well because of their own background as foreigners, according to Exodus 22:21. They were to welcome their poor 
fellow Israelites into their home, Leviticus 25, 35. They were even to celebrate the festivals along with the aliens who were living among them, according to Deuteronomy 16, 11. In the New Testament, Jesus urged hospitality to be extended beyond the confines of the home or the tribe when he illustrated that in the parable in Luke 11, 5-8 of the midnight visitor, as well as the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. And he even scolded Simon the Pharisee for being a poor host. Listen to what he said in Luke 7, 44. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since, she, since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. That gives you an insight into the hospitality that they would show. But we are to do this. We are to show hospitality. Not to false teachers and not to unrepentant believers. I remember the first time I saw this. We had a couple in our church that was under church discipline. They'd already went to the fourth step. They were put out of the church. They wouldn't repent. We spent a year on this. Kept trying to build bridges to them. Kept trying to talk about the issues. Could never get them to repent. Others went and talked to them. Finally, the whole church is talking to them. And they were put out of the church. According to Matthew 18, 15 to 17. All of a sudden, one morning, I was in the parking lot and I was heading up to the church and I saw their car pull up. I was like, what is that? But they didn't get out. It was somebody else in the church that got out. And I went straight to them. I was like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing with their car? Oh, we went over there last night and, and we had dinner with them and they let me borrow their car for a little while. I said, well, did you ever talk about the sin for which they were put out of the church for? I said, no. I said, brother, I hate to tell you this, but you're in sin for what you did. You read 1 Corinthians 5. Very clear. That when you have an unrepentant brother or sister, you're not to sit down and eat a meal with them unless you're talking about the sin and continuing to get them to repent. And since they refused to repent. In fact, it was another year before they finally did repent. They did eventually repent. I'll give you a good story to this because it's good to hear a good ending to it because unfortunately we don't always get that kind of ending. But they did repent and they were restored. But this couple, they didn't understand. And the sad thing about it was is they began to turn on our church and they left. Beloved, we are called to be faithful. And a lot of times we think of the word faithful, we think of faithful you know, in our relationship to the Lord. But here I'm talking about faithfulness to other believers. We are to show that kind of faithful love to them. And again, as I said when I started, that sometimes in part of that faithful love, that unconditional love, that you have to confront a very uncomfortable situation. 
because that's exactly what Jesus tells you to do. And by doing that, the church maintains the atmosphere of holiness. We can't call ourselves a holy church if we're not doing that. I want to close by reading from Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17. Listen to Paul as he talks about the past life of the Ephesians. He says, So I say this, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have become or have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Don't act like they were acting. In fact, you be different because you are different. And as you relate to them, speak truth. There's a singer by the name of John Charles Thomas who was at the age of 66 had wrote to a columnist saying this, I am presently completing the second year of a three-year survey on the hospitality or the lack of it in churches. He says, to date of the 195 churches I have visited, I was spoken to in only one by someone other than an official greeter and that was to ask me to move my feet. That ought to make us all feel bad. If we can't show hospitality right here among us. You know, in Hebrews, it talks about the whole reason why we come together. One of the reasons, anyway, is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We can't do that if we're not being hospitable. If we're not loving, right? Well, it all starts with a relationship to Christ. If you've never repented and given your life to Christ, I call you to repent now. The Bible tells us in John 1.12 that you must receive Him. The Bible says in Romans 10.9 that you must confess Him as Lord. In Romans 10.10, you must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. In Romans 10.13, you must call upon Him in order for Him to save you. As we have this opportunity now to share in the Lord's table, just like any other sin, we need to confess sins like this. Our lack of love for strangers. Our lack of hospitality. Our lack of meeting needs. 
A lot of times we put the meeting of a need on somebody else. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Somebody else can deal with this. But how can we really demonstrate love for one another if when we're in a situation like that, we push it off to someone else? Right? Father, we pray this morning. We pray that you would help us. We pray this morning, Father, that we would have the same type of character as Gaius had. A man who was not just loved, but a man who loved. A man who walked in the truth. A man who acted faithfully in everything he did for the brethren. He went out of his way to meet their need. May we be the same kind of people that we go out of our way to minister to each other, to show hospitality, to be lovers of truth. We thank you for this morning, Heavenly Father. And we pray now as we have this opportunity to share in the table, the Lord's table, that ultimately we see the love of Christ and what he did on our behalf, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray.